Good morning, Life Church. We're reading from Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit down. Um couple of uh, quick announcements. This Friday, we're having a Good Friday service, our first ever in uh, four, four years old as a church. It's time. I think we've got enough volunteers to pull it off. Um, really excited about that. It's going to be a powerful time of, of worship and of prayer. Um, we're going to start with the Lord's Supper on Friday because that's how it all kicked off on that last supper. So uh, we'll go from there to kind of trace Jesus' passion singing, praying, uh, it'll be a powerful time. 7 p.m. on Friday, childcare is provided. And then Easter Sunday is obviously a week from today. Um, I actually lost my seat up front, so I was worshiping in the back. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed watching all of you, by the way. I never get to do that, so that was wonderful. Um, but I say that because it's a little crowded. Uh, we're gonna have space, though, next Sunday. Lord willing, Lord willing. That balcony is going to be done next Sunday, <laughs> okay? Um, so I just want to encourage you. Um, we, we really believe that the gospel is best shared in relationship, usually around a, your table in your home, around a coffee or a meal. We, we hardly ever say, I don't think I've ever said, hey, invite your friends to church. Um, this will be maybe the first time I've ever said that. We will have space in a balcony. Invite your friends to church. Let them hear the good news of Jesus, his resurrection. All right, that'd be awesome. Get your Bibles out if they're not already out. Go to Acts 15. I'm gonna tell you the gospel according to Mark. Several years ago, a couple of men named Newman Smith and Robert Hall got into a heated disagreement about some theological issues. Uh, they were both pastors, and this seems to be what pastors like to do in their free time in the West. Not in other countries, they don't have time, they're in jail. But here in the West, with all of our free time, we like to argue about little things. And the argument was so bad that Smith decided to write a small book denouncing Hall and publicly condemning him. You've seen YouTube channels like this. Um, I call them heresy hunters. Anyways, this is not the soapbox. I'm getting on a soapbox and this is not where I'm going with this. Um, it was a scathing little book, and, and Smith was very pleased with his work. Um, the only problem, though, was that after he wrote the book, he couldn't think of a good title for it. And every good book needs a good title. And so he sent it to one of his friends, and he said, hey, I need some recommendations. Can you please read this book and, you know, give me some ideas for a title? And so his friend reads the book and couldn't help but see the irony in all of it. You see, years before writing this scathing little book condemning Robert Hall, 
Smith had written another little book called Come to Jesus. And this book was all about the gospel. And this book was all about grace. And so after his friend read the bitter tirade against Hall, he sent the, the book back with a brief note which said, the title I suggest for your book is this, Go to Hell by the author of Come to Jesus. <laughs> as far as we know, the book was never released. I tell you that story because there's a similar irony taking place in Acts 15 and, and specifically in the life of the Apostle Paul. For example, in the first half of the chapter, Paul is the defender of the Gentiles. But in the second half, he is the one condemning John Mark. In the first half of the chapter, he is the messenger of grace. But in the second, he is the one with no patience for wavering Christians. Somehow, Paul, who thought of himself as the chief of all sinners, couldn't bring himself to give this one specific sinner a second chance. And his position on the matter was so firm, was so hard, was so dogmatic that it split up the dynamic duo, Paul and Barnabas, that had been the greatest missionary duo the world has ever seen. So the first half of the chapter, it's all about grace, love, unity. And yet by the end of the chapter, we see none of those things in the Apostle Paul which lets you know that this has to be the inspired word of God. Why would they put this in there? Like, it makes him look not great. What in the world is going on here? Context is so important, and I'm going to give you the context. After I give you the context, I'm going to show you what it means for your life. I, I say this a lot. I don't, it's not a cliche. I actually do think this will change your life. If you see it and you believe it, it's really, really good news. Before we get to the good news, I want to show you the context. Uh, buckle up, this is going to be a, a, a wild ride through the, through the book of Acts in the New Testament. John Mark um, is, is just a, a guy, probably most of your age, uh, early 20s, mid-20s. He was a teenager when Jesus was roaming the earth, preaching and teaching. Um, his family was a very influential family in the early church. His cousin is actually uh, Barnabas. So much so that uh, many of the meetings in the early church were held at his house. And so a wealthy family. In fact, I don't know if you remember uh, not too long ago, uh, Peter's in jail and everyone is gathered in this house and they're praying for rescue and the angel comes and rescues Peter. That's at John Mark's house. And so he's in the inner circle. He's around guys like Peter, James, and John, men like that. He, he had the kind of access to the apostles that probably guys his age would have killed for. Um, imagine like your heroes of the faith. I don't know who they are. For me, it'd be like being, you know, a pastoral assistant for Tim Keller times a hundred, you know? Like that's what John Mark had access to. But not only that, in Acts 12, we see that he was actually chosen by Paul and Barnabas to join their team and travel with them on their missionary journey. Now, could you imagine that? Paul, Barnabas, look at this guy. They look at all the, the 20 year olds and they're like, you. You're the one, you get to join us. And so he's got some cloud, he's got some status. Look at the passage with me in Acts 12. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. He didn't just have a front row seat to the apostles' work, he was in the game. Um, he wasn't just one of Paul's admirers, he was one of his partners. And that's really incredible to think about. Here's the thing though, evidently, this journey that he went on with Paul and Barnabas wasn't as glamorous as he thought it was going to be. 
I mean, I don't know what he was expecting, but it wasn't as exciting or Instagram worthy as he was banking on. And so when it came time for Paul and his companions to go out again, John Mark ditched them. Look at verse, or Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Persia and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That word returned is a nice word for desertion. We know that it's a nice word for desertion because in Acts 15, Paul describes this return as falling away. The word that he used for departed that Corin just read for us in Acts 15 is aphistemi. And I hardly ever show you Greek, but this is important because that is the word that gives us our word apostasy. John Mark didn't just walk away from missions. He was walking away from the faith. He didn't just desert Paul. He was deserting the people of the way. The missionary journeys, I think, were so brutal, uh, so testing, so hard, so difficult, uh, that they shook his faith to the core and almost left it for dead completely. Can you blame him, though? I mean, could you imagine going from town to town watching your cousin and the Apostle Paul get screamed at, spit at, beat up, stoned, and whipped, imprisoned, and hunted relentlessly, all because of the message of the gospel? Could you imagine going into a new town or a new city and just knowing we're probably going to start a riot and be fleeing for our lives in a matter of days? Like the emotional and physical and mental toll that that would take on you. Could you imagine being a guy like John Martin? I don't know what he thought he was signing up for, but I can almost guarantee you it wasn't any of that. And so now he's intimidated, he's scared, he's discouraged. I bet he's a little confused and he's hurt. And so he wanders off into isolation and returns to the comforts of a normal life. I think we're all growing in this sense of, you know what? Christianity is going to start costing something here pretty soon. It'd be so much easier just to have a normal life. Never tell anyone about Jesus. Never speak up about our faith. Could you relate to John Mark here? Anyone who's ever told you that following Jesus is going to lead to your best life now is not following Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you follow me, the world's going to hate you. If you follow me, you're going to suffer. I don't know, have any of you ever been there before? Have any of you ever felt like Mark before? The pressure is just getting too much. It's, the cost is getting too high. The pain is starting to feel a little bit too real. I've talked to several of you in this church who said, if I speak up about God's view of sexuality, I will lose my job. It's starting to feel it a little bit. Of course you felt it. I feel it. Some of you are feeling this right now. It's not that Jesus is a hard master. Jesus is such an easy master. Jesus is such a good master. It's just that the world and the flesh and the devil are really hard opponents. And sometimes it just would be a lot easier to not fight, not try. I know some of you are struggling with a failing faith right now. I know some of you, like, it took every ounce of strength that you had. I'm going to tell you right now, it's the spirit that gave you the strength to just be here today. You have a struggling faith, a failing faith right now. You 
are John Mark and Acts 13. I've got great news for you. It's coming. That's the context. Now let's go back to Acts 15. Mark is somehow back in the picture in Acts 15. He's back in the fold. He's ready to get back into the action. Barnabas believes in him, but Paul doesn't. Barnabas wants to bring him along. Paul doesn't trust him anymore. I mean, how could he? You can't blame Paul here. He deserted him in his hour of need. He made Christ look weak. He made their message seem ineffective. Why would Paul ever let him near a missionary journey ever again? And so they get into this huge fight. It gets heated. Eventually, Paul and Barnabas split up. Barnabas takes Mark. Paul takes Silas. And from there, they go their separate ways. Now, it needs to be noted that Paul and Barnabas stay in contact. Like if you've been a part of a church split where like one pastor hates the other pastor and one church hates the other church, that's not what's going on here. Um, Yeah, there's a ton of emotion. Yes, neither of them are, are gonna waver at all. They're not compromising. They are splitting, but it is amicable as well. There could be a whole sermon on how to disagree with passion and with love. And out of this text, we're not gonna talk about that today though. But we know this because Paul mentions Barnabas a couple of times in the New Testament. And, he, and every time he speaks about Barnabas, it's always in a great way. And he always puts him on the same level as him as an apostle in equal standing. He never rags on him. He never um, talks bad about him. Barnabas doesn't do that either. Barnabas could have made things really hard for the apostle Paul. But they just go their separate ways. The emotions are high, the argument's sharp, but they leave as friends. So that's important to note that. I don't want you to leave here thinking this is like your church split in the 21st century. But here's the big question, and this is all we're going to talk about. Why is this story in the Bible and what in the world does it have to do with you and me today? Two things I want to show you today. First, this story is in the Bible to be a reminder that God's grace is always most evident in the midst of our failures. God's grace is always most evident in the midst of our failures. John Mark was a failure as a missionary. John Mark was a failure as a friend. John Mark was a failure as a follower of Jesus. Anybody ever been a failure before? Yeah, good. Anybody who raised your hand, you're just gonna get some power today, okay? Because that's how the spirit works. God um, sees all the failures and he doesn't see failures like we see failures. When God sees our failures, do you know what he does? He actually gets excited because he sees our failure as an opportunity to show off, to show off with his power, to show off with his grace, to show off with his kindness and all of these different things. So we see failure as like, oh no, how will I ever live this down? And God's like, oh yes, I can't wait to show you what I can do. And so John has failed and God's ready to sweep in. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Do you believe that? That means the greater our sin is, the greater God's grace is. That means the more embarrassing your collapse, <laughs> the more extravagant his compassion will be on your behalf. The harder your fall is, the heavier the flood of mercy will be when it hits you like a tidal wave. That's what Romans 5.20 means. John Mark's life is a perfect example of that. In fact, and this is what I wanna show you, his name is littered all over the New Testament just to prove the grace of God. For example, look at Colossians 4.10. 
I can't pronounce this name. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. You know who's writing that? Paul, yeah. 18 years after Acts 15, and Paul has realized he was wrong about John Mark. Now he's telling the church to welcome this guy that he had once rejected. Then look at Philemon 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. John Mark's back on the team. He's back in the game. He's back in the inner circle. He's one of Paul's closest friends, partners in ministry. Then skip ahead to 2 Timothy 4.11. This is Paul's last letter. Just before his death, final instructions to Timothy. He says, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. You ever wonder why there are all these greetings in the New Testament, all these lists of random names at the end of letters? All these instructions about specific people that we hardly know anything about that don't make much sense to us. Usually we skip past them. Usually we breeze through them because they're pointless, right? Why are they in the Bible? Because I think one of the main reasons all these lists of specific names at the ends of these letters, one of the main reasons they're in the Bible, one of the main reasons the Holy Spirit directed the Apostle Paul to write them and list them and have Mark's name littered across the New Testament over and over and over again is because he wants to show off his grace and remind us that our failures in the past don't determine his plan for our future. Like, that's why those names are there. That's why Mark's name is all over the New Testament. It's just God saying, hey, remember, remember, this is all me. John Mark had left God behind, but God had not written him off. And he hasn't written you off either. No matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, he has not written you off. There is always a way back. Reminds me of this one scene in the Lord of the Rings. Any, any Lord of the Rings guys, girls in the room? All right, there you are, John. I see you, man. Um, Frodo and Sam, they're on their way to Mount Doom. And some of you just like totally zoned out. Okay, um, wow. That's probably the vast majority of you. I apologize. I'll find better illustrations in the future. Um, they're on their way to Mount Doom to destroy the ring of power and save Middle-earth. Even as I say that, I'm like, wow, I'm a nerd. Okay, so um, their journey's hard. It's dangerous. Uh, they have no idea where they're going, how they're going to get there. But somewhere along the way, they meet this hideous, pathetic little creature named Gollum. And uh, here's a picture to show you a little bit. So, so Gollum used to be a hobbit. Um, just like Frodo and Sam, but then he found the ring of power and he lived with the ring for years and years and years and years. And then the ring like destroyed him and it, it devolved him, body and soul and mind. And so I just wanted you to have a picture to give you nightmares if you're under the age of 10, I apologize. Um, yeah, so he starts traveling with Frodo and Sam to show them how to get to Mount Doom. Sam does not trust Gollum. Sam is convinced that Gollum is just there to try to steal the ring and kill him and ruin their journey and their efforts. And so the whole time Sam is mean to him and he's rude to him and he's cruel to him, he believes that there is no good left in Gollum. 
At one point, Frodo confronts Sam because he feels bad for Gollum. And he says, why do you do that? Why do you call him names? And why do you run him down all the time? Sam said, because that's what he is, Mr. Frodo. There's nothing left in him but lies and deceit. It's the ring he wants. It's all he cares about. Looking at poor Gollum, Frodo says, you have no idea what it did to him. I have to help him, Sam. This is the part I love. Sam asks, why? Frodo says, because I have to believe that even he can come back. I read a book a while ago by Philip Yancey called What Good is God? One of the main points in the book is that God loves to redeem irredeemable people. That God loves to bring people back that would otherwise have no way back. For example, he tells the story of Sandra. Sandra always knew she was beautiful because in school guys were always giving her attention and all of that. She thought, why not charge for it? And so she writes, I signed on with a pimp and for six months it was great. He put me in a nice hotel. I had more money than I could imagine, but then I got addicted to drugs and alcohol. Cannot tell you how utterly lonely I began to feel. I sat on my bed and watched TV all day until the men came in at night. I had no friends, no family. I lived with a deep sense of shame. For a solid year, I never got out of bed. I was so depressed. Finally, God drew her to this place called Linda's House of Hope, which was a Christian organization started by a former top madam. And there God saved her and healed her and redeemed her. And there's story after story like this and what good is God? I highly recommend it. Guys, Jesus once looked at the religious leaders of his day and he said, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Why is that? Because when Jesus looks at us, he never sees a lost cause. He never sees a hopeless case. He gave up his life so that there would always be a way back for the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low. Amen. So listen, guys, the more we grow in our maturity, in our Christian lives, the more we realize that we're the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low and that he came to show us grace like everyone else. John Mark was the lowest of the low. He was a coward. He was a defector. He was a failure. But all that means is that he was the perfect candidate for grace, perfect candidate for kindness, perfect candidate for the compassion of God. The rest of the New Testament makes this point to emphasize that he received that grace, so much so that 18 years later, he died as a martyr preaching the gospel in Alexandria. Guys, I'm gonna say it again. Some of you think you're too far gone. Some of you believe your failures are too significant. Some of you believe that your sin is too pervasive and you just sang songs about chains being broken and you felt defeated because you don't live as if your chains have been broken. You believe that there's no way God could ever love you and definitely that he could never use you, but none of it's true. And this story is in the Bible to prove it to you. God's grace is always most evident in the midst of our failures. And so today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart and keep wallowing in your shame. Reach out and take a hold of that gift that's available to you. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second flows out of it. 
This story is a reminder that our greatest failures always lead to our most significant impact. And this is where it gets even better. Oh man, could it get better? This is where it gets even better. It's not just the fact that he loves us. I mean, that's enough, guys. That's enough. It's not just the fact that he redeems us. It's not just the fact that he heals us. But it's the fact that he takes the sin that used to define us. And he uses that very sin to help others who are struggling in the same way. Our greatest failure will always lead to our most significant impact. The thing that you're the most embarrassed about, the thing that you feel the most shame over will be your greatest glory, both now and for all eternity. Where do we see that in the life of John Mark? Look at the very end of 1 Peter and another one of those random greetings that seems pointless and feels like it has nothing to do with us. It's Peter writing to the church at Rome and in the midst of incredible persecution, he's writing them to encourage them to suffer well, to stand firm, to not lose hope and all of those things. And look at how it ends. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon or Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. I get goosebumps every time I read it. You will after today too. Do you see it? Peter calls Mark his son in the same way that Paul calls Timothy his son. And that's important because it's another way of saying that these men have taken on um, personal responsibility for the spiritual care and discipleship of these young guys. Paul is Timothy's spiritual father. He invested time and blood and sweat and tears and all of his energy into Timothy. And Peter did that with John Mark. And this is where the multi-generational arc of the grace of God comes into view because who is the apostle that told Jesus that he'd never run away? But then who ran away with everyone else when things got hard? Who was the apostle who promised that he'd never deny that he belonged to Jesus? But then when a servant girl came and threatened him with a question, he denied him three times to the point of cursing. Who is the apostle who understood the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment of apostasy firsthand? <laughs> Peter. Who better to disciple the one who had fallen away than the one who had fallen away before him? Guys, the beauty of grace isn't just that God redeems our past, it's that he uses our past to help others in the present. So Peter saw John Mark in a way that no one else could see him. Peter saw John Mark in a way that not even Barnabas could see him. He understood his struggle like no one else could, and so he took him under his wing and he made him his spiritual son. He said, listen, I know what you're going through. And I've been there. You deserted Paul. That's nothing. I deserted the Messiah. Okay, like, I'm worse. He said, let me show you the kindness that Jesus showed me. Let me show you the grace 
that Jesus showed me. He didn't throw me away when I failed him back then. He's not going to throw you away either. This is the beauty of grace. Christ took one man who had fallen away and made him a rock in the church. And then he took another man who had fallen away and placed him under that first man's care. He wants to do the same thing with you. That's his plan for your life. That's his plan for your past. This is what's so cool. So um, I know this is a lot of history. Stay with me. So, so John Mark ends up traveling around the Roman Empire with Peter, and he becomes his scribe. And as they're traveling, he's writing down all of Peter's sermons and all of his teachings and all of his conversations. And the end result of all of those writings was the second gospel account of Jesus' life, the gospel according to Mark. So listen, this is what I want you to see. This is the point. Peter's greatest impact in the world is his lasting testimony of the life of Christ pinned by his spiritual son, John Mark. And the only reason we have that account today is because Peter had the unique ability to meet Mark where he was, to give him the grace that no one else could. And the only reason he had that ability was because of his failure. I met an amazing woman several years ago, runs the Pregnancy Life Center here in Charlotte. She helps women. She cares for women. She loves women who either have already had an abortion or who are contemplating one. And she comes alongside of them and she helps them heal. And she loves them and she serves them in all kinds of different ways. And she has this unique ministry and this unique sympathy. And she's impacted more women than she can even count. And it's all because she's been in their shoes. And she told me when, when we met several years ago that every single day she's blown away by the grace of God, not just because he healed her of her guilt and shame, but because he's taken the thing that she was the most ashamed of and turned it into her greatest ministry. I think about my friend who was addicted to pornography, almost ruined his marriage, almost ruined his life. His wife left him for a little bit, but then God restored them and healed them, healed his mind, healed his marriage. Now his most effective ministry is to men who are walking down the path that he once walked. His greatest failure is now his greatest ministry. The thing that he's the most ashamed about is now the thing that God gets the most glory in. I think about another friend who was saved out of a homosexual lifestyle. He was a call boy as a teenager lived an absolutely crazy life. I mean, drugs, everything you could imagine. God saved him, God healed him, God restored him. Now he travels all over the country helping people and healing people who are struggling with the exact same things that he used to struggle with. The stuff in his past that used to cause him the most embarrassment is now the cause of his greatest impact in the world. This is true for you too. This is how grace works. The Spirit's power is not demonstrated in our strength. The Spirit's power is demonstrated in our weakness. And so the things that we think might ruin us, or the things that embarrass us, the Spirit's like, if you just bring that out, I'm going to flip that on its head. And I'm going to use you in the world. 
Don't hide your weakness. Don't be ashamed of your failure. It's nothing more than an opportunity for the Spirit, to, the Spirit of God to show off his power. Do you believe that God is strong enough? Do you believe that he's good enough to take your greatest failure and turn it into your greatest legacy? The Spirit's speaking this to some of you right now because some of you are holding on to some things. You're like, I can't say it. It's too embarrassing. I'm too ashamed of it. Today needs to be, to, to be the day that you tell someone and, and that you get prayed over and you get healed. James 5, and then God can start to use that. He is strong enough. He is good enough. Today is, is some of your day. Today is some of your day of liberation. We need to let God heal us of our past. We need to let him use our past to heal others as well. This is the gospel of Jesus. That Christ takes sinners and turns them into saints. That he takes our shame and turns it into our glory. That he takes our greatest failures and turns them into our greatest ministry. This is what Isaiah 61 means when it says he will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. He's going to get glory out of your failure. We need to believe that gospel today. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no more shame. There is therefore now no more guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel according to Mark. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? Stand with me. I'm gonna invite you to pray. If you need prayer, if you need to speak something, and we're gonna have some people up front and these last two songs, we'll pray for you. We'll, we'll leave. We'll, you come up front. You find us. We'll go out to the lobby. We'll go out to the prayer room. And we'll pray with you. Um, I'm going to invite you now, though, where you are, to bow your heads and just let the Spirit speak to your heart. And you speak to Him. If there's a sin you need to confess, confess it. If there's a promise you need to believe, believe it. If there's a step you need to take, take it. Let today be the day of your salvation if you are not saved. After we pray, we'll go to the table together. If you didn't receive these elements on your way in, you can go ahead and raise your hand and um, one of our ushers will bring them to you. If you're a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here. 
I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. I just invite you to observe this time. It's reserved for those who have received the gift that Christ gave us on the cross. And so if you're in Christ, let me encourage you to not take this lightly. Um, Grace, as we've seen, is the most incredible, astounding gift in the world, but it's not something to abuse. He hasn't given us grace so that we can just keep on sinning. And so if there's sin that you still haven't confessed, please confess it now before you go to this table. If there's something between you or brother or sister, you need to get it reconciled before you partake of these elements too. Let's remember his sacrifice. Let's participate in it again. This bread represents Christ's body that was broken so that you could be made whole. This juice represents his blood that was shed so that you could be made clean. Eat and drink in remembrance of him.